Well, as they head down the hall, I want to, I want to speak a little bit about our mission trip that's coming up. Uh, next month, we'll be doing a mission trip back in Seattle. Y'all know that we help to, um, to uh, support the, uh, the Mountain Church in Seattle. And they are back in a building they were in several years ago. They kind of left for a little while, and they've come back to a, a building that they are renting. And, uh, and that building's got some damage to it, some roof damage and some wall damage, some sheetrock damage. Um, and anyway, they're needing some help to get some of that stuff repaired. And so we're going to send a work team up there this summer. We're going to go up from July the 19th through the 26th. That's going to be a Tuesday to Tuesday. And uh, we are looking for about eight or so people that could go with us and help us. Uh, it'd be nice if you had some construction skills or if you just had a willingness to learn or if you just got some muscles that you want to throw in the mix, then uh, we will take that. Uh, it's not going to be a normal mission trip where we're out in the community doing lots of stuff. This is going to be more at the church trying to repair the damage that's done there and to save them several thousand dollars in repairs. And so if that fits you or is it something you would be interested in going on and, and being a part of, I need to know pretty quick. We're trying to book our flight. The tickets right now are about 700 bucks round trip. And, uh, and that just keeps going up. So we want to get our tickets bought as soon as we can. So if you're interested in doing that or going on that trip, then that would be a huge blessing. See me and let me know really soon. Like I know we've got a deadline in the bulletin of June the 17th, but if I could know even sooner, that would help us a lot to be able to plan. We're trying to get housing lined up and all that other stuff done in Seattle. Uh, if you can't go, but you would like to help somebody else go, we've got a few college kids that would be incredible on this trip, but finances may be able to, to be a, a, a blocker for them. So if you wanted to help fund somebody or help uh, partially fund somebody going on that trip, if you would let me know, then you could kick in some money. We could offset some of the costs for our college students and be able to help them to get up there and to serve and to be a part of that. Uh, mission trips are life-changing, and, uh, and if you wanted to be a part of something that would be life-changing, then I would encourage you to, um, to be a part of this, even if you have to take a little vacation to go with us. And so uh, anyway, that's coming up. We're, uh, we're looking at, uh, at that deadline. But if you would be interested in going and you know that's something God wants you to do, then uh, please let me know soon so that we can get you in the, in the uh, group and be, uh, be able to purchase some tickets and get that lined up, okay? All right, let's go back to the book of Hebrews. We've been in the book of Hebrews for the last uh, several months. We are moving into chapter 11. We did that the week before last when I was here. I was out last week, and I appreciate Anthony stepping in and preaching for me. Uh, we were able to get mom and dad moved down here, and they are with us this morning, and it's good to, uh, to have them here. Remember our promise we made to each other that you would not tell them anything bad about me. Uh, they, they know enough already, and they don't need to be told anymore, so uh, it is good to, uh, to have them here. If you haven't met my mom and dad yet, I want you all to be able to do that after church and uh, Several of you helped to, uh, to go and clean out at the house and get it ready for them, and I appreciate that. Several of you have prepared meals and brought by the house, and I just say thanks for that. That way I don't have to feed them, and that's really good. So uh, thank you for all you've done and all the love that you've shown. And Mom and Dad already know a lot of you from their times of visits back here before, but it would be a good chance to strike up those friendships again. All right, Hebrews chapter 11 is kind of the core of the book of Hebrews. We've been building all along in this series, and we've been talking about how that these, these new Christians who had converted from Judaism were tempted to go back into the law and the legalism of Judaism, and the writer of Hebrews has been calling them back to this grace-filled walk with God. What grace does is changes our heart. And it changes our heart, and it, it ignites in us this ability to exercise faith in God. And so grace comes first, and then out of that grace comes this faith that is a response to God. And two weeks ago, we talked again about what the definition of grace was and why it was so important that we define 
I mean, define faith correctly. If we don't define faith correctly, then we get off into some weird stuff that's out there and, and being taught all over our world today. Faith is not me coming up with a dream and telling God what I want him to do and then just claiming it and praying and, 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 and just, just holding on that God's going to give me what I ask him for. That's not faith. That's not biblical faith. Faith is a response to what God has revealed. So faith starts with God. God saying, this is what I'm about to do, and I want to include you. This is what I'm about to do with your life. This is what I'm about to do in your world, and I want you to be a part of that. And so faith is a revelation from God that we respond to. God says, this is what I'm fixing to do. And we say, I would like to be a part of that. I believe you're going to do it, and I believe it's going to be good, and I believe that I want to be a part of that. That is faith. It's an obedient response to what God says that he is about to do. And so in this chapter 11, we're going to see kind of a pattern begin to emerge. And, and, and I, I give you that definition of faith as something that, that I want you to, to confirm in Scripture. I don't want you to just take my word for it. Okay, I'm, that's a new definition of faith. I want you to see that what I'm, what I'm saying, that, that faith is a response to God's revelation, and it brings God's reward. I want you to see that as we go through this chapter because again and again there's going to be this pattern of revelation, response, and reward. And we're going to see it all the way through this, this chapter 11. And, and if you don't know that definition or you're not, you're not building upon, upon that, then you just kind of blow through this chapter and go, wow, there were some really cool guys that did some really cool stuff, and man, they're my heroes. The, the, the central figure of chapter 11, the core of Hebrews is not these people. The central figure of all of Scripture is Jesus Christ. This chapter is not about what the men and the women that are mentioned did. It's about what God did, and they just simply responded. They just simply joined in with what God's doing. Now, the cool part about that is that means that you and I can do the same thing. If God revealed and said, hey, this is what I'm going to do in your day, in your world, and in your life, And these guys said, Lord, I'm all in. Then guess what? The good news is this. He'll do the same thing in your life. He will come to you and say, this is why I created you. This is what I want to do through you. This is what I'd like to do in your world, in your time, in order to accomplish my purpose. And all we have to do to exercise faith is say, Lord, I'm all in. I'm all in. I I, want to be a part of that. Because your plan is greater than my plan. So let me set aside my little plans and let me get in on the good stuff that you are about to do. So look for that pattern as we go through this this, this passage. And today we're just going to grab about 10, 11 verses and and, and move through it. Next week we'll hit a lot more people. But I want to show you the pattern and then I want to give you uh, uh, about eight core convictions that I have when it comes to faith. These are mine. I'll share them with you. And, and hopefully some of those you will sink in, they can become your core convictions as well. So look at these things as we go. So let's start in verse 6 where we left off last time that I was with you. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. He says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him, to please God. You can't please God apart from faith. For whoever would draw near to God, that is the reason we were created. If you want to look at just cut to the chase where the rubber hits the road, why am I here? That was it, to draw near to God, to have this intimate relationship with God. That's our purpose. So without faith, I can't please God because whoever would draw near to God, whoever would accomplish their purpose in life, must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now listen, this is not just saying, hey, do you, do you believe there's a God? Oh yeah, I believe there's a God. 
That's not what he means when he says that we must believe that he exists. What he's saying is you must believe that he exists exactly as he's revealed himself. That he's not just a God of many. That he's not just one of, of, of thousands. That he's not just somebody you ought to look up to. That he's not just the old good old man up in, in the sky. But that he is exactly who he's revealed himself to be. The God of all creation. The God without whom we never would have taken our first breath. And the God without whom we would have no purpose, no meaning, no, no, no future, no hope. So when we, when we say that I believe God exists, what we're saying is I believe God exists exactly as Scripture has revealed him. That he is the God of all creation. That he is a God that Hebrew says, who made everything out of nothing. That he's a God who, who created me, who formed me in my mother's womb, who gave me meaning and purpose and value and has called me to himself and has empowered me to do his will, who has gifted me with gifts that allow me to do what he's called me to do. That's what it means to believe that he exists. Not just that he's out there, but that he is who the Bible says that he is. And so if I'm going to draw near to God in faith, then I've got to first of all believe that he's exactly who the Bible says that he is. I don't get to form my own God. I don't get to say, well, I like a God who does this, so that's going to be my God, and I'm going to believe that a God exists. It's not just choosing your higher power. It's saying, I believe that the God that the Scripture reveals exists exactly as the Scripture says that he exists. So we've got to believe that he exists. But there's a second part of that, and that is that we believe that he rewards those who seek him. You say, well, what is my reward for seeking God? Here's what the scripture says. He that seeks him with all of his heart will find him. He is your reward. He is the reward. It's not the streets of gold. That's, that's lanyap. It's not all the stuff that we fantasize and think about and, and dwell upon that, that will one day be in heaven, those are all cool things. But, but the greatest reward of all is Him. He is our reward. And so when I believe that He exists exactly as Scripture says that He does, then I can believe that He will reward me exactly as Scripture says that He will. That as I draw near to Him, that He will draw near to me. And we can be in relationship with one another. That's what he's saying. So without faith, I won't do either. I won't draw near to God. Why would I draw near to a God that I don't really believe is who the Bible says he is? Why would I draw... Any of you draw near to the tooth fairy? Santa Claus? No. Some of you have imaginary friends, (laughs) but you won't tell anybody about it. We, We know that, okay? But, but here's the deal, okay? We draw near to that which we believe really exists. And, and we, we draw near to that because I believe that God exists as Scripture reveals Him to be this loving God who, who, who set aside everything to come and rescue me in my sin. And I come near. So we've got to believe that He exists exactly as Scripture says, that He rewards us with Himself uh, to all those who seek Him. And now He's going to get in this list of people who did that. Look at this. Now again, look for my pattern. Revelation Response, reward. Watch this. By faith, Noah, being warned by God. There's the revelation. Concerning events as yet unseen. In reverent fear, constructed an ark. There's the response. So what happened in the story of Noah? God comes to Noah. 
God says, Noah, look, the wickedness of this world is beyond belief. I'm about to destroy the world with a flood. Noah goes, what is a flood? That's not in my dictionary. It's going to be a lot of rain, Noah. It's never rained. What is rain? Well, rain is when it falls from the sky and it's going to fall hard. And it's going to flood the earth. And Noah says, how will we survive? And God says, I'm going to show you how to build an ark. And you're going to place your family upon that ark, and I'm going to send you some animals to go on that ark. And, and, and everybody in that ark will survive, but everybody outside that ark will perish. Whose idea was a flood? Noah's or God's? Who revealed the plan? Noah or God? Noah. No. God. What is the faith teaching out there today? You tell God what you want, and you believe with all your heart, and he's got to give it to you. That's not biblical. It begins with revelation. God reveals to Noah, this is what I'm about to do. It's, it's things that Noah's never seen that nobody's ever heard of. And yet Noah, in reverent fear, constructed the ark. And here's the reward. For the saving of his household. Revelation, response, reward. That's what faith is all about. By this, okay, by his faith-filled obedience to what God had revealed... He condemned the world. He separated himself from the world. The world's laughing. He's building a boat in the desert to prepare for rain that the world has never seen. So much rain that everything will be flooded. And the neighbors laugh. And Noah keeps building. For almost 100 years, Noah works on this ark. It's not instant gratification that we're used to today. Listen, what, what you're going to see as we go through this chapter of, of Hebrews is that it's, it's going to make comments like, and the things that were promised to them were never fulfilled in their lifetime. Why? Because the promise was so grand it couldn't be contained in one lifetime. Here's Noah. God reveals, Noah responds, and, and, and God sends reward. And by this, he, he condemns the world. He separates himself from the world. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, the Bible says. And the world didn't want to hear that. It was so wicked and sinful, it, it, it rejected him. And he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. There's another part of the reward. Now, if he's an heir, that means he's a recipient by virtue of his relationship. I will be an heir to the $10 my parents have when they die. I'll split that $10 with my two brothers. I didn't earn it. Okay? It's mine by virtue of my relationship with my parents. That's, that's how that works. And so he says here that, that Noah, out of the virtue of the relationship he has with God, he becomes an heir of the righteousness of God that was given to him by faith. So all this stuff is tying together. It's, it's, it's faith, which is a response to God's revelation that brings about a reward. The reward was the saving of his family, temporary, but also eternal, this, this air of righteousness that comes by faith. It's not a righteousness by works. So be careful that, that when you talk about this response to God, that we're not talking about a work salvation. We're talking about grace, that's given, but grace is given in such a way that it stirs up faith in me and that faith brings reward. Not because I've deserved it, but because I'm in relationship to God and I am a heir of 
Christ, heirs with Christ, Scripture says. So that's Noah. The next example here is Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed. There's the response first, okay? What was he obeying? God called him to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. There's that inheritance, that heirship again, okay? So they're getting the, my, my three points out of order, okay? I need to talk to them about writing this, okay? But here we go. They're all three there. Notice this, okay? Abraham becomes, by, by faith, Abraham obeyed. That's the response. When he was called out to go to a place that he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out. There's the response. So the, the obedience was the response to the revelation. He didn't know where he was going, but by faith he went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So here's the deal. God says, Abraham, I want you to, to follow me. Abraham was an old man at that time. And God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to leave everything that's familiar to you, and I want you to go to a place that I'm going to give to you. There's the revelation. Abraham, I'm going to make out of you a nation. And, and, and the number of your nation will be so grand, it'll be like the, the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. You won't be able to count all the people that I'll bring through you. Oh, God, there's a problem. My wife can't conceive. We have no children. How are you going to make a nation out of a man who can't make one child? And God says, Abraham, is there anything that's impossible for God? Sarah, when she heard the news, that in her old age at 90 would conceive a child through which this nation would be born, laughed. And God says, why is Sarah laughing? And Abraham says, you made her, not me. Not me. <laughs> and God asked the question, is there anything too big for God to do? No. You see, some of you, God's calling you to step out in faith, and you're going, yeah, that's, that's too big. That's, I can't do that. And God says, I didn't ask you to do it. I said, I want to do it. Big difference. Abraham, I didn't ask you to produce a child. I'm going to produce that child through you. He, he didn't say, Abraham, is there anything too big for you? He says, Abraham, is there anything too big for me? Big difference. So here's Abraham. He, by faith, he obeys. There's the response to what God had revealed. God called him out. And what did he do? He went out. Did he know where he was going? Did he know what he was doing? Did he have a 10-year plan? No, it says he went out to a place, not knowing where he was going. You know why? Because faith trusts God to lead you every step of the way. And Abraham says, okay, God, I'm going to take step one. And then will you show me the next one? And God says, you get up tomorrow, and I'm going to show you where to go tomorrow. And you get up the next day, and I'm going to show you where to go the next day. And you just follow me. Where are we going? I'll just follow me. Just follow me. God seldom gives us the whole plan in, in one sitting. But he says this, you take the first step, and I'll give you the second, and the third, and the fourth. So here it is. God says, Abraham, I want you to go. Abraham obeys and gets up and goes. God calls, Abraham goes. And he went to live in a land of promise. As in a foreign land. That land was not yet his own. He shows up in this land that God's saying, Hey, Abraham, as far as you can see, this is, this is all going to be yours. But it's not yet yours. 
He lives in tents with his sons, who were also heirs with him of the same promise. This is just a temporary dwelling, Abraham. Verse 10, for he was looking forward. You, you do realize, guys, that faith always looks forward. Faith doesn't look back. Faith always looks forward. And here's Abraham looking forward. He's looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He wasn't looking for Egyptian cities. He, he wasn't looking for, for, for Jewish cities, Hebrew cities. He had his eyes on eternity. And I think that's where we fall short sometimes. We set our eyes on the here and now. The things that I can touch and taste and smell and see, feel. We forget that there's something so much more that God has planned for us. But Abraham did not. He was looking forward to the city that that had a foundation whose designer and builder is God. Heaven was what his mind was set on. He was not thinking temporal. He was thinking eternal. Dude, he's living in tents. He's not even building a house. Because that land was not all that God had promised him. His eyes were on the prize. His eyes were on eternity. And the, and the promise that God made him, that he was going to be a, a man uh, that, that was a father of a nation that would be so numerous he couldn't count them, would that be fulfilled in his lifetime? There's no way. Here's the deal. If we began to walk by faith, the plans that God has for us will never be fulfilled in just this lifetime. But your life is going to impact somebody else who will build upon what you've poured into them, who will then be built upon by others that will follow after them. And all of a sudden, this thing begins to really unfold. Crossroads. Small little country church, right? But do you realize that if we do what God's called us to do and we walk by faith, that this little bitty church can touch the world? Maybe not in one generation or two or ten. But this church can, can make a world impact if we will just walk by faith and trust that what God's saying he wants to do through us, whether we are college age or whether we are much older, if we will do it now, then God will build upon it for generations to come. And part of that reward that you and I will receive will not be in this lifetime. But it will be in the next. It will be forever. And so as we, as we read through this, we see this revelation. We see this response. And we see this reward. Verse 11, he talks about Sarah, Abraham's wife. By faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive even when she was past the age. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. There's all three things. God promised there's the revelation. Sarah believed and considered him faithful. That's her response. And what was her reward? She became the mother of that great nation. She received the power to conceive. She didn't create the power. She received the power. There's the reward. God says, Sarah, here's what I'm going to do. Sarah laughs. Sarah lies. I didn't laugh. 
But Sarah trusts and considered God faithful to do the impossible. And the reward was that God worked through her to birth a nation. Faith, faith is not something that starts with us. It's not something that we generate. And it's not something that we just kind of stumble into. We need to intentionally listen for the voice of God. Listen for the revelation of God. Uh, I think I shared with you last time we were together. The reason that we have a quiet time, the reason that we pick up God's word and say, Lord, I want to read another portion of of your word today is not so I can check it off my to-do list and feel really proud that I've gone so many days in a row without forgetting to read the Bible. That's not the reason we do it. We, we read the Scripture because we need revelation. We need God to reveal to us what He's doing in our time, why He created us, why He has us here, what His purpose for us is. And all of that is, is, is revealed through His Word. We, we need Him to reveal how sinful we are and how hopeless we are apart from Jesus so that we learn to depend upon Jesus and look to Jesus and put our faith in Jesus. Everything we need right, is right here to help us to understand who we are and why we're here and what God's doing in our world. And that's where the revelation comes. So I pick up the God's Word, and I see who Jesus is, and I think, Lord, you've called me to be like Jesus, but I'm not. And so there's a response. Lord, I need you to help me to be more like Jesus. And in that request and in that time, there is a reward that comes where God begins to reshape my character and my heart. Verse 12 says, Therefore, from one man... And him as good as dead. There were born descendants, as many as the stars of the heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Promise fulfilled. It wasn't Abraham that did it, it was God that did it. And it wasn't done in one lifetime. It's still being done in our day. Verse 13. These all died in faith. When I die, my prayer is that somebody could stand in this pulpit and say, He died in faith. With his eyes not set upon the temporal things of this world. But he died with his eyes wide open, looking into eternity. Longing to be face to face with Jesus. Longing to be in his presence forever. All these died in faith. Now here's the difference. Look at this. They died in faith not having received the things promised. You say, well, if I could just get what, I, what I'm after, then, I, yeah, I'd have a lot of faith. And if, if I pray and it works and I do and, this go, and, and, and I get my little formula going and, and I get everything that I want, then, yeah, I'll, I'll stick with it. But usually between the moment of revelation and the time of reward, there's a rough patch that comes in between that. There's the neighbors walking by Noah and going, he has lost it. There's Noah's family, I mean, uh, Abraham's family that he left behind going, dude, you had everything you needed right here. Why would you take off and leave? 
It's Sarah's servant who says, having a baby, that's no problem. I can do it just like that. It's, it's the belief that, that comes in between the revelation and the, and the reward that, that tests our faith and that, that, that causes us to hold on. And so here's these people God's made this promise to. And it says they all died in faith. They all died faithful to God. But, but they didn't receive the things that God had promised. So was God unfaithful to them? If, if they died and didn't get what God said they were going to get, did God deceive them? Not at all. It says they saw them and greeted them from afar. There they are, looking ahead again, trusting that those things were were yet to come. They've acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. For the people who speak this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. For if they'd been thinking of the land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. Here's the deal. The promise God made to them was so grand it couldn't be completed in a lifetime. It couldn't be finished in a lifetime. Noah, I'm going to put you on a boat. And I'm going to destroy the world. And you're going to live. And and, and you're going to be the one from whom all people now will flow. Was that finished when Noah died? Not at all. Abraham, making you into a great nation. Was that finished when they died? Not at all. But it was well underway because these guys were faithful to God and they died faith-filled. But notice this, their heart was set on something more than just this earth. If what they were after was what they had left, he says, they could have gone back. But what they were after was something much, much more. Much more. They were looking for a better country, a heavenly country. And therefore, God was not ashamed to be called their God. And he prepared for them that city. I want to give you eight core convictions this morning. Eight things real quick that are core convictions that strengthen my faith. These are not somebody else's that I've borrowed. They, they are, I think, biblical, and, and I want to share them with you. And maybe these will be eight things that you would consider. There will probably be a whole lot more than this. This is not a complete list, I'm sure. But let me share with you eight things that, that I think will strengthen your faith. I know they strengthen my faith. The first conviction is this, that God is real, and he is real good. God is real, and he is real good. Verse 6 said, we, we've got to believe that he exists. And then he rewards those that, that seek him and follow him. If I'm going to have faith, then I've got to believe that God is real. Uh, he, he is real and he is real good to those who are his. He's not some man-made legend, not some kind of fairy tale that's out there, but he is real. He is more real than anything that my five senses can encounter. More real than what I can see and taste and touch and smell and He's, he's more real than all of that. And he's real good. In fact, God is only good. There's no evil in him. God is good. He is real good. He is only good. And so even when I experience the painful, 
I can rest assured that God is working for my good in all things. That's a core conviction that if, if I don't have, I'm going to be lacking. In, in fact, without this conviction, I will never draw near to him. If I don't possess that conviction that God, is, that, that God is real and that God is good, then I'm not going to draw near to him. I will keep him at arm's distance. I will say, yeah, I believe that there's a God, but I'll never draw near. And I'll never experience him in his fullness. There's a second core conviction. And that is that God is sovereign. It's one thing for God to be good, but to be powerless. It's another thing for God to be good and to be all-powerful. And that's what he is. He is both good and all-powerful. To be, to be good but powerless means, well, I, I wish I could do something, but I can't. But this God who works for our good has all the power to accomplish that good if we will cooperate with him. So he, he is sovereign. No one is greater. No one is more powerful than our God. His will will ultimately be accomplished, and no one can stop him. When he said to Abraham, this is what I'm going to do, no one could stop that. When he spoke to Moses, this is what I'm going to do. No Pharaoh of Egypt could stop God's plan. When God speaks to you and says, this is why you are here. This is your purpose. This is what I want to do through you. Nothing can stop that plan because God is sovereign. He, he takes and directs the hearts of kings like a river, it says. If he can change the hearts of kings, then he can do whatever is necessary to accomplish what he has spoken that he wants to do through you. And because he is sovereign, nothing he says is impossible. Nothing. Now, without that conviction, I will only trust God as far as I can, as, as far as my mind can comprehend. What do you mean? Well, if I don't believe that God is completely sovereign, then I'm only going to trust God for the things I can figure out. Okay, God, I see you say to do this, and I can see where that would be really good. Okay, I, I, know, I know where we're going, Abraham would say. You gave me the map. Here we go, and I know where I'm going. I'll trust you. If I don't believe God's sovereign, then I'm only going to trust him as far as I can see with my mind. And I'll seldom experience him do the impossible. The third core conviction is this for me. That God is the source of all I need. God is the source of all that I need. Wherever God guides me, God will provide for me. There is great freedom in this. Listen to me. If you understand that God is the source of all that you need, then you're no longer a slave to man. When your boss at work asks you to do something unethical, you can say, sorry, I'm not going to do that. And if it costs you your job, you say, you know what? You weren't my supply in the first place. You weren't my source. If somebody asks you to compromise your values in order to have a friendship or in order to have something else in life, you can say, I'm sorry, but that's, I, I refuse to do that. You know why? You, because there's nothing you give me that God has not provided. And it gives you great freedom. So in him, we have all that we need. Therefore, I can seek him with all my heart because I know that I will find everything I need in him. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added unto you. Without that conviction, I will waste my life chasing after things that don't matter. And things that cannot satisfy. 
I will be a slave to others. And I will constantly find myself pressured to, to, to compromise and, and, um, and cave in. There's a fourth conviction. And that is this, that God's will and God's ways are always better than mine. God's will and God's ways are always better than mine. Scripture says in Proverbs 14 that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. We justify a lot of things in our mind and say, well, I know that the Bible says not to do it this way and to do it that way, but my situation is a little bit different. No, it's not. We, we can convince ourselves to do anything we want to do, but, but the reality is, is that God's way and God's will are always better than mine. And to experience his best, I must submit to his will completely. And when I believe that his will and his ways are best, I will submit because I want the best for me. It, it's when I listen to God's will and I go, yeah, I'm not convinced that that's really the best way to do this. And that's when I get myself in trouble. So when I believe that God's will and God's ways are always better than mine, then I can fully submit to him without fear of missing out on something. Isn't that what usually keeps us from submitting to God is that we're afraid we're going to miss out on something? Well, God, if I, if I say to you, I'll do anything you want me to do, then I might miss out on something I want to do. Well, that's saying that what you want to do is going to bring you more joy, more satisfaction than what God wants you to do. That's what you're saying. I'm not convinced, God, that your way is the best way. I'm not convinced that your word is trustworthy and true. And so without that conviction, I will settle for second best, never experiencing the best that God intended. The fifth conviction that strengthens my faith is that God's word is trustworthy and true. That God said what he meant, and he meant what he said. That he always delivers what he promises, and he delivers it on time, on his time. They're, they're, people say, well, isn't, isn't it risky to trust God? I would say it's risky not to trust God. God's word is the rock upon which our lives ought to be built, and to step off that rock is to step into quicksand. And, and, and yet many of us find ourselves dancing in quicksand and just, just trying to keep moving to stay afloat. It's not risky to trust in his word. His word is the solid rock. Every other promise is, is shaky ground. As I thought about this, I thought this, and, and I, I think it's, it's absolutely true. I can trust God more than I can trust myself. My heart is wicked, Scripture says. It is deceitful. It, it tricks me and lies to me, but God does not. So his word is trustworthy and true. And if I'm going to get revelation of what I ought to be doing, I need to be in that word. And I need to have confidence that the word that I read is the word that God speaks. Without that conviction, I will believe the lies of my enemy and the lies of my own heart. There's a sixth conviction, and that is this, that he is worthy of my whole heart. God is worthy of my whole heart. Not, I'll give you part of it. You deserve that. I'm going to give you the whole thing. 
You are worthy of my whole heart. There's no person, there's no thing that is more worthy of my love than God. And because of that, I should freely and fully offer him my whole heart, holding back nothing. As much as I love my wife, and I do, there is no one on this earth more deserving of my love than God. No one at all. And no greater love will ever be shown to me than his love. And without that conviction, I'll give my heart to lesser gods. And I'll end up disappointed again and again and again. Because people will let me down. They will disappoint. And they can't fulfill the promises that they make. But God can. Seventh, we're almost there. Seventh conviction is that God alone can fully satisfy my soul. God alone can fully satisfy my soul. Every person who's ever been created was created with a God-sized vacuum in their heart. You ever tried to run a shop vac? You just take that hose and Brennan knows. We've been doing it. It sucks up everything around it. it it's, it's a vacuum. And, and we've got this God-shaped hole inside of us that's going to fill itself with something. And if it's not with God, it will be filled with something lesser. We were created with a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. And only in God does our soul find rest. Only in God can the deepest longings of our heart be fully satisfied. Everything else is a temporary fix. It's trying to to cram a, a square peg into a round hole. And without the conviction that God alone can fully satisfy my soul, I will search in vain and I will bounce from thing to thing from relationship to relationship, from job to job, chasing after something to fill the void that only God can fill. And here's my final conviction. Number eight, heaven is my home. I've got to live for the eternal. And there's no better time to start that than right now. I don't need to live for for this life. The scripture says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust and all that stuff can destroy. But lay up for yourself treasures where? In heaven. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Heaven is my home. I am a foreigner here, living in a land that's not my own. This is not God's ultimate, but his ultimate is coming. Nothing here can compare with what awaits me there. And if heaven is my home, then the answer is is not to build bigger. I mean, I'm from Texas, guys. And in Texas, bigger is always better, right? The answer is not to build bigger. 
but to build better. Not to work harder, but to work smarter. I don't lay up for myself treasures on this earth, but I lay up for myself treasures in heaven. You know why? Because where your treasure is, what? There will your heart be also. You, you want to know where your heart is? What do you treasure most? Is it the stuff of this world? Or is it knowing that you've made an eternal difference? Is it having a, a big bank account that you can relax and say, oh, I can rest and everything? Or is it saying, you know what? I've made a difference with what God's given me. If heaven is our home, and, and, and we will be at home in his presence, then that's where our hearts need to be set. I think the greatest hindrance to having a great faith may be having great stuff. Stuff that we have built our identity upon. Now listen to me, there's nothing wrong with having stuff. There's nothing wrong with God pouring out blessings upon you as long as you're not building your identity upon that stuff. Well, who are you? Well, I am. Look, no. You don't get your identity from the stuff. You, the greatest hindrance to having great faith is having great stuff that my identity is built upon. Don't let that stuff define you and control you. One guy said it this way. He says, many people are possessed by their possessions. And the fear of losing our stuff and the identity that we've attached to that stuff can cause us to lessen our faith. So, if heaven is our home, then that's what we long for. It's what we work for. It's what we live for. And without that conviction, I will too easily settle for temporal things, forfeiting the eternal. When we settle for lesser things, we miss out on what matters most. So as we close this morning, where is your treasure? What do you treasure the most? What, what gets you out of bed every single day? What's first on your mind, last on your mind? Is it the stuff of the world? Or is it the stuff that awaits you in eternity? When we look back at these people we've looked at today, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, what was it that, that defined them? Not the stuff they had. Not even the stuff that they got. But the God who had them. And the relationship that they had with him. If we want to be great men and women of faith, we've got to develop some core convictions that are anchored upon God and his unchanging character. And I'll close with this. We, we've got a world of people today that are, uh, we call them OCD, right? Any of you hear OCD? You wouldn't admit it. Yeah, most of you. I think we need more OCD people. Not those with a disorder, but those who have an obsessive, compulsive desire to seek God. OCD.
an obsessive compulsive desire to seek God because when we do that we will find him and we will find him to be everything scripture has revealed him to be and that is where our souls are satisfied and that is where life begins to really come together and make sense so as we close today maybe you say God just 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 make me OCD make me uh, have this desire that, that just fuels everything I do to know you more. Would you pray with me?